Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll probably mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today's show will be Genetics 101 for sperm and egg donation. What do you really need to know about the genetics of potential donors and what information is readily available? Here's just a sample of what you will hear. I'm Dawn Davenport, the Director of Creating a Family. We're the National Infertility and Adoption Education Organization, providing support and unbiased information before, during, and after adoption or fertility treatment to help create strong families. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show, podcast, And to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, you can subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. We are proud to say that we are underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring's 2014 Heart to Heart video contest is in full swing. If you haven't submitted your video, you are behind the eight ball. If you have achieved your pregnancy with a little help from Bravel, Minipure, or Rupernex, you can submit your story via video and maybe win 10000 towards your child's education. You can get more information at hearttoheartcontest.com. And by the way, the theme for this year's contest is Have Heart, Share Hope. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing you unbiased education and support. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors are Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years, and they are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only 1 in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become donors. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility. With seven offices in New Jersey, RMANJ maintains IVF delivery rates well above the national average and offers the latest and validated technical solutions to help hopeful parents increase their chances of success in the shortest time possible. We also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an infertility service provider, please consider using one from the Creating a Family directories on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, uh, years in operation, just a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today's show is Genetics 101 for Egg and Sperm Donation. What do you need to know about the genetics of a potential sperm donor or egg donor? What type of genetic testing is available, both pre- and post-conception, or pre- and post-transfer, I should say? 
We have with us Dr. Harvey Stern. He is the Director of Reproductive Genetics at Genetics and IVF Institute. He also supervises genetic screening for GIVF egg donors and for Fairfax Cryobank's sperm donors. We have Dr. Lee Silver. He is a molecular biology professor at Princeton, author of over 200 research articles on genetics, as well as two of the leading academic genetic textbooks. He is the founder and chief science officer at GenePeaks. We have with us also Stephanie Andrioli. She is a genetic counselor at Comprehensive Genetics with a master's in human genetics. She advises patients both prenatally and preconception at Comprehensive Genetics. Welcome, Dr. Harvey Stern, Stephanie Andrioli, and Dr. Lee Silver to Creating a Family. Good to be here. Thank you, Dawn. You know, as we we always post our shows uh, ahead of time uh, to our, we have an extensive, uh, Creating a Family has an extensive uh, uh, social networking community. And we would, by the way, audience, we would love to have any of you join us uh, on any of our Facebook or Twitter or Pinterest uh, accounts. Uh, we always post the show. And it was clear from the um, the questions I received both uh, in the support groups and, and networks, uh, social networks, as well as, as emails that I received, that there was a lot of confusion about the type of genetic, t- genetic testing that is available. And also I think there's a fair amount of confusion ab- about really uh, – what we can test for, uh, and maybe a little, uh, I think the general public may be a little overly optimistic. Or perhaps we'll find out today. Maybe I'm, I'm not, but about exactly how comprehensive our, our genetic uh, opportunities are for genetic testing. On this show, we're going to primarily focus on genetic testing of donors, both sperm and egg donors. And we'll talk some about genetic testing of embryos pre-transfer. I want to begin, however, um, with a basic refresher of of how genes affect our health and and our propensity towards certain diseases. You know, the whole dominant and recessive gene expression that most of us have probably forgotten from high school biology. Stephanie, could you give us a kind of a a refresher course, which I realize is a little unfair since I'm not going to give you much time to do it, but uh, uh, just Refresh, so we're all on the same page. Uh, if you can kind of go back to uh, a simplified version of what you what you know about uh, what genes tell us about diseases. Um, wow, yeah, that's a that's a pretty um, big question, <laughs> but it is very important. Um, the one thing that um, I talk about with my patients is if you remember, as you said, back to high school biology, if you remember drawing that square, the Punnett square with the four smaller boxes inside, the thing that we often talked about in class was eye color, brown eyes and blue eyes. And this is very oversimplified. Um, we know now that it's not exactly, it doesn't work this way, but it's how we talked about you had a big B for brown eyes and a little B for blue eyes. Um, the big B is dominant to the little B. So if you inherit a big B from one parent and a little B from the other, you show brown eyes or darker eyes, perhaps hazel, but darker eyes, but you carry that little B. It's in your body. It doesn't show itself, and it doesn't affect your health, um, but it's there. You have it in your genes, and you can pass it on. You could pass it on to a child, and that's what a recessive trait is or a recessive condition So it's part of your genetic makeup, although it may not affect how your body works. You express the dominant trait. It shows itself. And um, there are many um, conditions that that work this way. Um, And we can test for a lot of them 
um, and and some are harmful and and some are not. And so this is sort of the the basic principle. Uh, One of the common misconceptions is that recessive uh, conditions, quote, skip a generation. Um, That's Mm -hmm. what um, many people think because it doesn't always show itself, again, because you can be a carrier but not display the, the condition. Um, so that's one thing that we hear quite a bit is that it skipped a generation. Um, we had a question, then uh, Stephanie, consider yourself answered. That was a uh, we had a question from Stephanie exactly on that uh, about uh, skipping a generation. Uh, all right, excellent, uh, Dr. Silver. What common diseases do we know have a single genetic cause uh, that so that it's easy to test for or easier, I should say. Well, there are um, over a thousand common recessive diseases um, that are caused by uh, uh, mutation in a single gene. Um, these include diseases like cystic fibrosis and Tay-Sachs and uh, PKU, um, and another thousand less well-known. Um, and these are recessive um, diseases, so that means, as um, as Stephanie said. Um, two people can be carriers of uh, mutation uh, in the gene that uh, is associated with the disease, and they won't even know it, and it may not have appeared ever in either of their families, but they can have a child uh, with the disease. Cystic fibrosis is the uh, best-known example of uh, uh, recess, serious recessive pediatric disease because it occurs in, in, uh, to, uh, to a great extent in Europeans. All right, so these are the the diseases that people think about then. What about diseases that we assume are, or we don't know, I suppose, but I guess the assumption would be that they're multifactorial. Dr. Stern, how is that dealt with? I mean, it's easy if there's just one gene and you know where to look, but what if you don't know, or you, you know that there are multiple places to look, or do we even know that? Do we know enough to know that? Well, for most human traits, the inheritance pattern is, as you called it, multifactorial. And what that refers to is uh, the fact that this involves uh, both genetic elements uh, transmitted through genes and uh, environmental uh, elements uh, that could either affect the way that these genes function, that we call epigenetic uh, events, or uh, things like diet, exposure to various toxins and chemicals uh, that will uh, also affect the ultimate, uh, what we call phenotype, the physical appearance or the health uh, of an individual. Okay, so if is it possible, do we know, are there specific diseases that we know of um, that are uh, uh, carried along more than one gene, and is it possible to test for those? And, and Dr. Well, Stern, I'm sorry, I'm asking you that question. Yes. Uh, well, there are numerous uh, multifactorial diseases. In fact, most traits are multifactorial. Uh, some of these cannot be directly tested for, uh, but can be evaluated by uh, looking for uh, metabolites, say, in the amniotic fluid or blood, alpha-fetoprotein in the case of uh, spina bifida, uh, which is a multifactorial trait. Uh, 
one can uh, potentially look for some other conditions where the genetic component is both significant and has been identified. However, for most of these conditions, uh, diabetes, heart disease, and so on, uh, we really don't know enough about genes yet to make any informed guess on to, as to the risk of transmission from a parent to a child. Uh, what we use in these cases is really familial or pedigree analysis where uh, families that have individuals uh, with this condition will be more likely, obviously, to carry uh, at least some of the genetic elements that are important. So when we see, for example, uh, a family where there's multiple generations of people with diabetes, uh, we then would consider that the risk for any child, if this was a, say, a donor situation, uh, would be increased over that of the general population. Uh, so I think family history analysis is probably the major tool used, uh, at least at this time, to analyze for the presence of multifactorial conditions. Okay. Let me uh, read a question we have from Leslie. She said, my wife and I are excited to begin our family this fall or early next year with donor sperm. We want to know everything about the genetics of our donor. We both believe that the future of medicine is in genetics, and we want to be able to give our children as much information as possible. How much information is typically available on sperm donors, and how much more can we get if we pay more? Um, I'd like to start with answering her question about sperm donation, and then I'd like to uh, uh, expand it to talk about egg donation as well, because I, I think that we'll have um, others who are going to be asking the same question about uh, egg donation. Dr. Silver, can you start by talking about what type is is currently usually, what type of information is usually available on, genetic information is usually available on sperm donors? Um, well, sperm donors get a, uh, a family history taken, which is um, useful for uh, looking at the possibility of dominant um, diseases, uh, but typically doesn't help very much for recessive diseases because recessive mutations can, uh, uh, can run in a family generation after generation without um, uh, rearing their head, uh, as the case may be. Uh, now, little known fact that, uh, still little known in the, in the, in the public at large, uh, but has been discovered by, uh, in the field of personal genomics over the last few years, is that in fact, every person, every donor, is a carrier for a um, recessive disease, at least one. Uh, so recessive disease mutations are common. Uh, people have one, two, three, maybe even more. Uh, and those mutations are in every donor, but they don't matter um, unless the recipient has a mutation in the same gene. So it's only if the recipient and donor have a mutation in the same gene that there's a 25% chance that a child could be born uh, with the disease caused by uh, that particular gene. So in fact, it's the, the donor genetics alone is uh, not enough to tell you about um, the risk of recessive disease in a child. Um, as most people know, uh, diseases most commonly have um, uh, heritable components from both genetic parents. Um, and so really the important thing is to look at the uh, um, at the two parents together 
and see whether or not they have incompatible mutations. Yeah, that makes now, sense. Now I can say, yeah, yeah obviously I can you're say getting that, half of your genetic makeup from one of the parents, either the well, it depends on who's giving the sperm or the egg, depending on the situation, right? Right, and so if you just looked, if you just screened a donor for all of the recessive mutations that are clinically validated that we know about. Um, today, it's very, very, very likely the donor would be shown to be a carrier. That's every donor. Um, but as I said, it doesn't uh, matter for anyone unless the genetic partner uh, is also a carrier for a mutation. Right. Although, uh, okay, Dr. Stern, we talked about, uh, you talked about uh, genetic counseling or, or you know, uh, taking a family history, a familial history, uh, to weed out uh, or to understand perhaps more of the, better word to say, of the uh, dominant diseases, the dominant genetic diseases. Um, what, exa- what type of typical tests are run on egg and sperm donors that go beyond that, looking, and, uh, looking beyond that to the specific genes? For any of the recessive uh, uh, the recessive diseases, well, the uh, most common uh, test that is performed uh, on donors is for cystic fibrosis. Uh, that is because that is what's recommended uh, by the uh, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Um, they tend to be a little bit behind, though, on sort of current uh, thinking about this. So uh, there are probably a group of about five or six uh, genes that are just uh, tested for pretty much uh, pan-ethnically. Uh, and this includes uh, cystic fibrosis, uh, spinal muscular atrophy, uh, fragile X syndrome for uh, the egg donors, um, and a couple of others, hemoglobin disorders, depending on one's ethnicity. Um, Now, one can uh, go on and do uh, much more uh, specific screening uh, involving uh, any number of up to 400 genetic uh, disorders. Um, And uh, this will vary from uh, the bank to bank. Uh, Many will have a similar core group of tests, and that includes the ones I just mentioned. And uh, I think we will be seeing in the future uh, expansion of these panels as the public becomes more and more aware of uh, the value of this extended type of screening. Uh, But right now, I think it's it's a core group of about uh, five to seven tests. Uh, Many uh, banks, but not all, will uh, do karyotyping, the chromosome analysis, uh, on all their donors in addition to these genetic screening tests that I mentioned. You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're talking about Genetics 101 for sperm and egg donation. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the new resources that we add to our site. We add five, at least five new resources every week. Uh, we also tell you about the latest developments that are happening in the news in the world of infertility and adoption, as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topic. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter at creatingafamily.org, any page of creatingafamily.org. Uh, Stephanie, um, Dr. Stern alluded to the 
uh, that that ethnicity can influence what type of genetic cons- uh, we should test for, what things we should be concerned about in uh, in when choosing an egg donor or a sperm donor. How would from a, a, a an intended parent's perspective who is considering choosing when they're thinking about which type of sperm thinking about how to choose a sperm donor uh, and they're choosing how does ethnicity play into what genetic risk factors there are um it can play in in various ways um you know there are certain genetic conditions that are more common in different parts of the world um you know so that is the has been historically the basis for offering particular carrier screening to people. We say, okay, you know, tell me where your family is from. You know, what countries do they come from as far back as you know? Um, and you say, okay, well, you know, my family's from these countries. And we say, okay, well, that means statistically you're most likely to be a carrier of these conditions. Um, but as we've said, with the recessive conditions, things can be passed down through a family without anyone being. Uh, affected with a condition, and it only takes one gene, um, and so you know the, the, we're we're getting a little bit away from that. There are some, there's a movement for what's called universal carrier screening for people to be screened for a, a, a wider range of things. Um, but in terms of uh, of choosing a, a donor, um, you know, in, in in the patients that I see, um, some people want a donor who quote unquote looks like them. Um, so that you know, it, there's there's a similarity to their partner or to themselves, their own family, and some people want to choose someone who's ethnically different. They feel that diversity is um, is important to them. You know, they feel that there's if there's less likely to be, you know, if there's less overlap, then they're less likely to have a child affected with something. So, um, you know, I don't think there's one common approach. It's, it's very individual um, in terms of how people choose donors. Um, but I do think, you know, screening itself is important, but how people choose, um, I, I don't see a, a one-size-fits-all approach. Yeah, that's for sure. <coughs> uh, Dr. Silver, if, uh, if somebody is choosing uh, an African-American donor or a Jewish donor, are there specific concerns that they need to be aware of or an Asian donor, or uh, where their where their ethnicity is easy to determine for the donor is are there things are there diseases that they need to be aware of? Well, I think that in in the past uh, the ethnicity would um, uh, help determine what tests should be what genetic screening should be uh, should be done. Uh, when and that was when genetic screening for individual genes so it was actually very expensive. Um, uh, but now it's um, the new data we have. First of all, say that especially in America, uh, people have eth- uh, parts of ethnicities that they're not even aware of. So there are Tay-Sachs babies born to uh, uh, parents where one might um, have a, a, a distant Jewish ancestry they didn't know about. So I think there's a limit to how far ethnicity uh, should be should go in terms of. Um, uh, determining what genetic screening should be done. Um, and genetic screening now per gene is very inexpensive. There's no reason that you have to choose uh, to screen one gene um, over another. 
Um, and uh, as I said, in the United States especially, um, there's a lot of mixed ethnicities. And so the simple model of you're an African-American or an African-American, of course, means a mixture of European and Asian and maybe uh, indigenous, indigenous American uh, heritage as well. So um, people um, may have a lot more mixed heritage than they're aware of. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And from what I hear what you're saying, it would give you a false sense of security if you think, oh, you know, I, I don't need to test for X disease, Tay-Sachs or whatever, because my donor is black or whatever. It, it's it's not that clear. Am I exactly. understanding you correctly? Okay, so that, that, yes, that exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Silver, I'm glad you brought up the issue of cost. You know, whether we whether we like it or not, cost is always something that we have to consider uh, because there are plenty of of, of our audience um, that is paying out of pocket. Uh, some are fortunate mm-hmm. uh, insurance uh, that will cover it, but but many do not. So let us talk about cost. Uh, I think most of us uh, do have the uh, idea that. Uh, Genetic testing is fairly expensive, and I'm, and by that I mean more than the uh, taking the family history part. So mm-hmm. what? Let's talk about some costs. What are the costs for running a? Uh, a well, maybe I'm, I'm assuming here. Is there a standard panel that is suggested that be run, um, as Dr. Stern was alluding to um, before? And if so, what would be the additional cost for that? That because I'm sure the intended parents would be paying for it. Um, well, I just can speak for for my own company because I don't know the data for everyone else. I can tell you that uh, the costs for actually getting complete DNA sequence information for a gene uh, has dropped um, over 10,000-fold in the last five years. So that, um, you know, 10 years ago, ACO, the American, Count, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the American College of Medical Genetics, uh, they had to make tough decisions because cost was a factor. And so that's why they brought all of these external um, points into, into account when they were deciding what test to give a person uh, rather than another. Uh, but now the cost of sequencing uh, 500 genes, um, even adding in the, um, uh, all of the extra costs, the labor and overhead, uh, that kind of thing, for sequencing 500 genes, you could do that for less than $800. So you're just talking about a couple dollars per gene. Um, and uh, the costs are going to keep on dropping down. Dr. Stern, do you see, you had mentioned that you think that uh, we will start seeing more genetic testing as, well, number one, as as consumers start becoming more aware of the availability, um, but also as um, as more genes become available to be tested. Do you see that, the, uh, uh, that doing this genetic testing will significantly raise the cost of sperm donation or egg donation? Well, I think this is uh, one thing that uh, the egg and sperm banks are keeping track of uh, because uh, 
uh, one would not want to raise the cost uh, of of using gametes uh, to a level that would uh, exclude people from having a, a, a opportunity to do at least basic uh, testing. Uh, but as Dr. Silver said, the other factor going on at this time is that the cost of such screening is starting to decrease dramatically. Uh, so what I what I would foresee is uh, that the number of tests and the type of tests will increase in the future, uh, and that the costs of these will be actually fairly similar to uh, current levels of charges uh, uh, for an increasing number of gene mutations. Uh, and I think what also drives this is the patient demand. And, uh, what we call multiplex panels or extensive testing panels are now available in the obstetrician's office. So uh, it would kind of make sense that this type of uh, testing uh, would then uh, transfer over uh, to the gamete banks. Uh, in the uh, Fairfax uh, and GIVF egg bank, we do see, you know, more and more people calling and saying, I've had this or that test done. Uh, can my donor get that same type of, of screening? Uh, so I, I do think that in the future, both as cost and education about these uh, screening tests uh, increase, uh, we'll see uh, more and more testing being done. Now, uh, it's going to vary. As Stephanie said, there are individual approaches. Some people actually don't want to know. They're afraid to know. They're concerned about the information. And this is, is something where I think sometimes people kind of mix up what being a carrier of a genetic trait is versus being affected. Uh, but uh, over time, the sophistication of the population is going to increase with this. So uh, I think within 10 years, we'll see rather extensive panels of screening being done on everyone. And just to be very clear on the point you make, because I do think it's an important one, uh, and it's actually one that I hadn't thought of, um, there is, because I think a lot of us wonder, if, would I really want to know if I'm going to get Alzheimer's? Would I really want to know if I, if I you know, have some awful disease that, that there's nothing I can do about? But if you could just elaborate a little more, if you do testing, and as uh, Dr. Silver said, we'd be doing testing on the intended parents as well, or the one that's donating their gamete. Uh, you would be obviously being tested as well. So, uh, so let's find. So you do find out that you have a, a carrier for a recessive gene. Why would you? Why would? Why shouldn't somebody become overly concerned about having that information and about it impacting their life? The distinction well, between the carrier said, and having it express itself is what I'm getting at. Right, and as Stephanie said before, all of us are carriers. We are all carriers of genetic disease, probably five to seven recessive mutations, um, and uh, they will not affect the quality of our life in the slightest uh, until we reproduce, and if we reproduce with someone who has the same, carries a gene mutation in the same gene, then a child could be affected. Now, this is fairly straightforward. I think it's why most organized religion figured out it's not a good idea to have children with your sister fairly early on. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, once we get over the shock that we're all mutants in a sense, uh, I think <laughs> it's a matter of being able to take stock and to make choices because there really, you know, uh, there really will not be a risk uh, if 
your partner is going to be, whether it's a donor or uh, a non-donor, is not a carrier of the same genetic condition as you. And just because you carry a recessive gene for a disease does not mean that that disease will express itself uh, in you. Uh, This was a big problem when sickle cell screening initially came out. And not only did the people not understand it who were being screened, but the insurance companies didn't. And carriers of sickle cell were denied insurance and so on. So, you know, we we as geneticists have had a history of this in the past, uh, but I think the solution and eventually the solution to sickle cell screening was good education of the people being tested. We have and a I also I just want yeah. to add something to, to that, which is it's um, if you're a carrier for um, a cystic fibrosis mutation, uh, for example, it's not that you won't probably get disease. You're you're not going to get the disease. You are a carrier for a recessive mutation, which is not going to affect your health. Um, and if you're a donor or you're a donor applicant who carries a cystic fibrosis mutation, actually the probability that a child will be born uh, that you fathered as a donor uh, with the disease is only 1%. Um, so there are, and with the, if you're a carrier for other recessive mutations, there's even a lower probability that you'll actually have a child. What matters is the, um, uh, the pairing of a donor and recipient. And so uh, carrier screening is kind of a funny diagnostic test because you're not testing for disease in yourself. You're testing for disease in a future generation that hasn't been born yet. Right, because it's, it, you're, it is, as we said before, it's the mixing of the two, uh, of the two genetic materials that is right. going to determine and, and, how the, and, what, and how it mixes and what expresses itself. We have a question yes. from Louisa. It's it's fairly long, so I am just going to summarize. What she's wanting to know is that why wouldn't we simply test the whole genome of each donor? Uh, her point is that it would be important information for the child. It would be important uh, information for the parent. So why don't we just test for the the whole genome is basically what her, her question is. Stephanie, I seem to be giving you all the hard questions. So so why should I stop now? <laughs> would you like to take a <laughs> So take a stab at that one. Uh, well, one, although we've just been saying that the cost of, of gene testing is coming down, and it is, um, testing the whole genome uh, is different than testing the, you know, 1,000 or so um, actionable genes that were, or, you know, thereabouts that we are, have been talking about. The, the whole genome testing um, comparatively is, is somewhat expensive still. Um, there's a time issue um, there's a lot of discussion in um, in the genetics community about obtaining information that um, we're not sure is clinically relevant, and what do you do with it? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big difference between knowing about a condition, such as cystic fibrosis or sickle cell disease, et cetera, um, and testing a whole genome and getting variations in the genes. And if we're not sure what it means, what do we tell the person whose genome we've just tested? And um, we need to be responsible about um, testing and, and being able to, to give people useful information. Um, the technology is available, certainly, and it is being used in very specific ways. Um, but 
this is not yet the um, arena that it's being used in. Um, it, it, it's it, it's a, a somewhat of a technical point, and maybe someone else can address it better than I am. I, I'm feeling a little bit um, that I may be being unclear, but it, it, the whole genome testing is being done, but this is not yet the place it's being done. I'm not sure you know if that makes sense. It does, and you know what I think is interesting is that how many of us, when we marry, before, you know, when, when our spouse says, will you marry me, do we say, well, if we're thinking about kids, can you first test your genome? I mean, we don't do that <laughs> with our spouses uh, so or our partners. So it's an interesting thing. Um, I also, and, and Dr. Silver, I'd like for you to address this, I, and I may be wrong on this, but I, I think that we've, I think the general public believes there there is more available, although I think we can test for the genome. Would we even know what to do with most of that information yet? I mean, is our knowledge of the field of genetics that far along? Well, I think we have to be um, careful here uh, in what we're talking about using the genetic information for. Um, we're, talking, we're talking now on this show about um, using it for reproduction. Um, Getting a whole genome, and I think uh, um, the caller, I mean, there, there are subtleties to a whole genome. We can, we can get all of the coding regions of uh, disease-causing genes. So, for example, we could get um, 1,000 genes or 2,000 genes. We could get the whole sequence of all those genes from a donor. Um, but in isolation, that information would not be very useful. Um, again, because what will happen is if you, if you sequence all of those genes, you're going to find um, uh, a lot of mutations, uh, some of which are clinically validated, some of which are just potentially dangerous, and it will, uh, it will not be useful information for reproduction uh, without getting uh, the same DNA sequencing information from the recipient. So it's only when the recipient's recipient's genome and the donor's genome are considered together that you'll get, um, uh, this is for recessive diseases, that you'll get information that's useful in terms of reproduction. And, you know, this also, it's, it's a, um, I, I, that was an interesting point that Stephanie made about the, the ethics, because we do have to be aware, uh, very much so, uh, in this field. Um, Dr. Stern, is the genetic screening information that we do with donors, do we share that with the donors as well as the, uh, the intended parents? Yes, the uh, genetic testing information is shared with donors, and if a donor uh, is found to be a carrier of a particular condition, uh, they will receive genetic counseling. Um, if it turns out that they have a medical condition that requires uh, some type of intervention, then we'll make sure that they see the appropriate uh, specialists for that. Uh, but all information is given to the donors about their own uh, health and screening. Yeah, I think that's, that's good to hear, and actually I think we probably all would have assumed that. Uh, Dr. Silver, you uh, speak of the importance uh, of having both the intended parent um, the one that will have the biological connection, uh, as well as the donor screened. So that certainly mm -hmm. begs the question all around, is that uh, is the screening a blood test or a saliva test, uh, or is it a, a mixture or what? 
Well, you can, so now you can take any tissue. So the simplest screening can be done with saliva, um, and saliva has um, uh, just as much human DNA as any other tissue. So there's no reason that a blood test has to be done. It's just a, uh, the blood test is a traditional medical technique, um, but saliva is perfectly good. Okay, and so that it's standard to be, you could use either one at that point. Yeah, and it's saliva uh, is a lot easier, obviously, and non-invasive. Yeah, yeah, yes, it's less painful as well. Um, yes, we have a question from Todd. Um, he's asking if it is possible to test the genetics of a potential, and in his case, he's asking for an egg donor um, for egg color, egg, egg, eye color. I'm sorry, eye color, height, weight. An, or an inclination. I think what he means by that is an inclination to obesity. I'm, I'm assuming there um, is that type of info. Well, we've been talking. Uh, let me back up. We have been talking about uh, genetic screening uh, for diseases. Uh, uh-huh. Dr. Stern, have, have we moved into? Is it is even number one possible to do genetic screening for things such as uh, height, uh, eye color, and weight? Uh, if it is possible, is it any better than just taking a look at the person or asking them a family history of that information? Good question. And, of course, uh, there are some things like eye color. There are some genes that potentially uh, could be involved, although it's not as straightforward uh, as, you know, the brown and blue, the statement Stephanie made earlier. Um, However, for most things, uh, no, uh, one is not able uh, to determine that height is a very, very complex trait. Uh, And Really, you know, you get the best idea by looking at the uh, individuals around uh, around you. I always used to joke that you get better information looking around the family table at Thanksgiving about what the potentials are. But for a donor uh, donor situation, obviously one can find out information about the the donor's own background and so on. Uh, but for many of the traits, and these are of course traits that a lot of people are interested in, uh, like intelligence. Uh, these are traits that are incredibly complicated and clearly have some genetic component to it, uh, but we don't know a gene or set of genes at this time that can definitively tell us either how tall or intelligent someone will be or whether they will have mental retardation, autism, or any other uh, complex trait. Oh, you uh, actually... I, could just, I would just want to add in one thing with height. Please. Um, Dr. Stern's absolutely correct, but um, the best way to ascertain the likelihood of having a taller child is by having a taller donor. I mean, that's, and in fact, the the DNA is not going to add much to that because the complexity, there's so many genes. But but here's an example of, you look at the donor's height, that's why people choose taller donors. and you look at all the other um, superficial characteristics of the donor, and all, this, all the donor banks give that information, and, you know, you can use that uh, to, uh, people do use that kind of information to, um, to increase the likelihood of having a child with a particular trait. The, uh, uh, we received a question asking if you can um, test, if, would genetic testing help in any way to reduce the possibility of, of having a child with autism? 
Stephanie, um, do we know enough about the causes of autism and the genetic connections to be able to test for it? Uh, that is a very common question. Um, there's a f- there's some correlations um, with some areas of the genome that are known to be associated with autism. Um, some of the more um, advanced testing, such uh, something called a chromosomal microarray, which is um, a um, not a common test that you know just a, a gamete donor typically, to my knowledge, uh, has, um, and um, but it's something we offer in prenatal testing. Um, can pick up some causes of autism, certainly not all. So if a, uh, a CVS or an amniocentesis specimen has a normal microarray result, it does not rule out autism. Um, we there, There's not a genetic understanding of all causes of autism. Um, there's some overlap with autism and something called Fragile X syndrome. Um, autism is one of those multifactorial where um, one of those multifactorial conditions where we know there's some genetic components, there's believed to be some environmental components. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of different um, uh, theories um, in terms of what, you know, population studies, oh, we see it more often in this type of family or this type of, um, you know, parent um, so we don't tell people that we can definitively test for it, um, but again, there's some overlap with some, and there are some genes that are known to be associated with it, but it's not a clear-cut, you know, um, like sickle cell, you have it or you don't, um, mm-hmm. but some types can be can be looked for. Um, that's a very complicated condition. Um, mm-hmm. As I think we're aware, the brain is highly complex, and that's a tricky one. Yeah, it is. And Dr. Silver, uh, along this line of, of testing for autism, when you you would be testing for both the uh, intended parent that's donating the genetic material as well as the gamete donor, the sperm donor or egg donor. Is there anything that uh, in uh, of the of the 500 genes that are routinely tested or, or possibly could be routinely tested for a reasonable price? That would give you any indication of a of a of a donor to avoid in order to avoid the possibility of autism. Um, well, I should say that it, what uh, our company is doing is just recessive, uh, simple single gene um, recessive diseases. So we're not um, looking at that. Um, uh, the second thing I should say, autism is very complex, as as Stephanie said, and a large. Uh, uh, a large portion of it is not understood at the at the uh, genetic level. Um, what a screen could do, and, I, and the screen uh, w- would have to be done both before conception. Before conception, you can look for regions of the genome that are associated with autism. Then after conception, because um, autism is one of those diseases where there are uh, pieces of the chromosome that become deleted or duplicated um, that are not heritable. They're called de novo mutations. And so um, you can look post-conception, you can look at the pre-implantation embryo or, or prenatally, um, as Stephanie said. So there are ways of looking at some of the 
causes of autism or some of the subset of genes involved um, in autism, but there's no way of eliminating the risk. I mean, most of it is still not something that we can come to. So in the future, when this becomes available, people are going to have to understand you're not eliminating the risk. You can rule out a couple of um, uh, causes, um, but you never eliminate the risk completely. Yeah, I'm really glad you you brought that up because I, it it would be my assumption. It's, it certainly seems important for us to say that with any of this, with the exception of the the diseases that have a or a single gene, if you've got this gene, you have this disease, or uh, or recessive. If you both, you know, if you have inherited it from both of your parents, then you would have this disease. Other yeah. than for that, you know, for any of the uh, more complex multifactorial type. Uh, diseases, we could eliminate the risk, but you're not you're not reducing. You, you, uh, no, I said that backwards. You can reduce, you could reduce you the reduce. risk, but yes. not eliminate the risk. Uh, yeah, right. I think that I think that's really important for people to understand. And I don't know if it's because you know TV or, or the media uh, hypes. You know what we what we do know about our genes. It makes us think that it's a black and white situation where okay, I can I will know a hundred percent, and it's almost as if because we now have with uh, when we're doing um, uh, sperm donation or egg donation, we have choices that you don't necessarily have or choose to have in um, uh, w- when you're choosing a spouse. So it's because we have these choices that we think we have to make them. Uh, and I'm all in favor of people, you know, protecting themselves when they can. But it's there's no 100% guarantees uh, when it comes to kids in any way. Um, right, right. There's yeah. ne- there's never going to be a guarantee ever. Um, and so people, uh, some people will say, well, I understand. Um, even if I can reduce the risk a bit, I want to do it. And other people will just, you know, take their chances. Right. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and we're not saying that there's not some things that we can test for with a, a fair degree of certainty. We've talked about cystic fibrosis and, you know, spinal mm-hmm. mus- muscular atrophy and, and fragile X, and those are pretty clear. So it's it's not – it's just that when we start getting into things like Dr. Stern mentioned, intelligence or, or autism, we get um, – um, we're, we're really going pretty far afield. Um, Dr. Stern, we have a question from Bethany. She says, heart disease and the BRCA-A breast cancer gene run in my family. I want to avoid it in my donor. Can we test for these in her genes? Well, the the problem with BRCA testing in donors, uh, and uh, this goes beyond sort of the typical, yes, we're screening you for six cystic fibrosis or spinal muscular atrophy. Uh, The question is, of course, uh, telling the individual what the test result really means. Uh, It does not mean that they will not develop breast cancer. It just means that of probably several hereditary breast cancer genes, uh, this one is not uh, abnormal. Now, uh, for screening individuals, uh, usually the best way to start that kind of testing is to look at the mutation in the affected individual in the family uh, where it's running, and then one could have a direct approach to uh, look to see whether they carry that gene, the person who I assume would be a recipient of a gamete donor in in this case. Uh, 
if they don't carry the familial mutation, then there's no need to go any further uh, because you won't be able to do any testing. Uh, that is going to give you a yes or no definitive answer. Now, for heart disease, you know, uh, again, this is a multifactorial, fairly complicated trait unless a specific form of heart disease uh, is running in the family. Uh, some of these have been known, such as, you know, hypertrophic cardiomyopathies have been known to be due to specific genes. But, you know, Cholesterol, the typical cholesterol-laden, uh, uh, later-onset heart disease uh, is, is something probably that is not going to be able to be tested for uh, in any type of screening panel because it's going to be uh, produced uh, both by diet, exercise, as well as some genetic input. Well, what if uh, Bethany, and, and she doesn't say, so I don't know, but what if Bethany has been tested and she does carry the the BRCA, the, the family mutation of that gene, the BRCA gene, um, is, would it make sense at that point for her to have uh, the donor tested, uh, or is it, is it a dominant gene? It is a dominant gene, so, uh, you know, testing of the donor uh, is still not going to avoid the risk uh, in an offspring uh, for, for cancer be, in that circumstance. But she would not be donating her, I, yeah, I see, but she's not donating her egg. She's okay, so. an egg donor. So uh, it, does it make sense for her to, I guess what she's saying is I've lived with this pain in my family, and I would like to make certain that this is something that's not in uh, that my uh, potential child does not uh, inherit. Uh, is that yeah. possible to to test for that? It would. I mean, and certainly you can test anybody for anything you want. Uh, the question is, uh, as I was saying earlier, the issue in taking a donor who has no family history and testing them for the BRCA gene uh, still does not guarantee that a child who comes from that donor would not have an inherited form of, of, of breast cancer. It would just probably unlikely to be the BRCA gene. Uh, and again, because of the implications of this testing, uh, uh, both for the donor herself and as well as the recipient, uh, because to really give someone an, uh, an answer as to what this testing means, one has to look really at the family history uh, and, and other family members and whether there's other forms of cancer in the family. Uh, and because it's such a more complicated type of screening, uh, it's typically not done uh, in uh, donor screening at this point. Yeah, and I could see how that would be, you know, complicated for sharing this information with the donor as well. Because it's, it well, I guess better to know in this case. It's better for the donor right. to actually have the information. But still, I can see how but it would be. But the common problem is people will be given false, uh, sort of false. Uh, assurance that they're not at risk for breast cancer where that's not necessarily the case. Right, yeah, yeah. Were that it were true, huh? The, uh, right. Or if you yeah. find out that the, if the test is positive, uh, you've done something to this donor that they may not have really wanted to find out well, that's right what, now. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Yeah, I, yeah, the ethics on that one, that that's kind of, that's a tough one. Um, right. On the other hand, having that knowledge is, is probably important for, for the donor to have. Um, 
In the time we have remaining, I do want to talk uh, a little. The, the focus, as I said, of this show is really on the genetic testing of donors. But I think that we would be remiss not to at least touch on the genetic testing of subsequent embryos that have been created through, well, doesn't have to be through uh, egg and, and sperm donation. But nonetheless, I do want to talk some because there's certainly been a lot of advances um, in the world of, of testing, uh, genetic testing on uh, for for embryos, um, one uh, somebody had sent in a question who uh, wants to ask me not to use their name. Um, they are using a known donor, and uh, the known donor does have the cystic fibrosis gene. Uh, and they don't say, but it, it, they, it must be that they also have the cystic fibrosis gene, because otherwise, I'm not sure why they would be worrying about this. But anyway, they wanted to know what their options were other than using another donor, which they don't particularly want to do. Um, so let me, uh, Dr. Stern, let me start with you on that one. All right. The options would be the same as if uh, a couple came in and were both identified as carriers of cystic fibrosis. Uh, one can get pregnant and do uh, testing post-conception, either by chorionic villus sampling or amniocentesis, uh, and that's wonderful until you get an affected in, uh, individual. In that case, very difficult decision made, especially after uh, using gamete donation to conceive. Um, or one can do uh, something called pre-implantation uh, genetic testing, which is a form of prenatal diagnosis done on embryos uh, conceived by IVF, uh, where they are tested prior to return to the uterus. Uh, and in that case, one would be able, in an at-risk couple, to test the embryos uh, that are created and only replace those or only use embryos uh, that would be determined to be free of cystic fibrosis, meaning that at worst they would be a carrier, but they would not carry two mutations. Right. So the and that's what we I think the well the valid point you could uh, if they weren't going to be going through uh, IVF if they didn't have to go through IVF they could try to conceive and then test afterwards but as you say then they're forced with, faced with the decision of what to do. Um, right. So this may be why this uh, she did not give me this information but in in her question um, so another option would be the uh, pre-implantation genetic testing. Right, or PGD, as people call it, just to make it less of a mouthful. Yeah, exactly, uh, PGD. Uh, Stephanie, and how does PGD differ from PGS, which is screening versus diagnostics, and how is that relevant to uh, testing embryos for genetic diseases prior to uh, implantation or transfer? They're um, They're pretty interchangeable. I mean, it just depends on whether you... Um, consider pre-implantation genetic testing to be diagnostic or to be a screen. I mean, it's a little bit of semantics. I think it, in my experience, it depends on who you ask. Um, in the prenatal community, people often uh, suggest that PGD be followed by prenatal testing to confirm what was found um, in the pre-implantation testing so that um, you don't rely solely on the pre-implantation testing. Um, so in those cases, those people may insist on calling it PGS. Um, traditionally, in my experience, you know, I say PGD. Um, I, there's, you know, I, I think um, 
you know, from from my side, it's they're they're relatively interchangeable. I mean, you can do PGD for a single gene disorder such as cystic fibrosis or sickle cell. You can use it to look at uh, the chromosomes to see if there's a, a chromosomal disorder such as Down syndrome or um, something like that. Um, you know, for people who've had multiple miscarriages or or have had um, previous conceptions with extra or missing chromosomes. Um, There's actually a lot of exciting uh, research that's uh, happening right now in that field of uh, using PGD to reduce the um, risks of miscarriage um, or failure to implant. Yeah, so there's a lot of exciting stuff going on right now. I'd like to take a moment to thank a few more of our goal sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show as well as all the resources at Creating a Family. We have Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. Cryos New York offers donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. He is a North Carolina firm, or they are a North Carolina firm, committed to uh, assisted reproductive law and adoption. We have come to the end of our hour. uh, We always have more to talk about than we have time to do it. Uh, I want to remind our audience that if you have enjoyed this show and want to help us grow, please take a moment to rate this podcast on iTunes. Uh, You can go to, if you have iTunes on your computer, just simply go to it and type in the words Creating a Family and it will pop right up. Or you can go to the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org, click on the iTunes button and it will take you to the rating page as well. Thank you, Dr. Harvey Stern, Stephanie Andrioli, and Dr. Lee Silver for being our guest today on Creating a Family. If you want to participate in a discussion of the topics of this blog, you can ch- this show, sorry, you can check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org/blog. To get more information on Dr. Stern, you can go to fairfaxcryobank.com or you can go to our website and just click on their logo. Uh, It's on the right-hand side of every page of our site. They are one of our wonderful sponsors. Or you can find them at givf.com. To get more information about Dr. Lee Silver or his organization, GenePeak, you can go to uh, their website, which is genepeaks.com. Dot com that's spelled G E N E P E E K S genepeaks.com to get more information about Stephanie Andrioli or about comprehensive genetics you can go to their website which is compregen.com that's C O M P R E G E N compregen compregen.com thank you all for joining us today and i look forward to seeing you next week Thank you. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. And now, an ad from Dad. All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? 
I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.